Good evening, and welcome to Cinema Death Cult, a podcast eulogy for the death of motion pictures. I'm Adam Bolger, one half of the team behind Cinema Death Cult. My trusty and loyal co-host, Colin Woodward, will not be joining me for this solo podcast episode. I'm speaking to you deep into November. <laughs> I'm not starting over. Uh, not the whole thing. I speak to you deep into October. During the first spooky season of the pandemic era, Halloween is fast approaching. Vampires, ghosts, and other fictional horrors are on parade every day on suburban lawns across America. Our frantic freebile minds, feverish from months of plague-born inescapable and real horrors long for the comforts of fictional frights, and look outside at those Draculas and smiling ghosts and feel some kind of strange comfort and question why we ever surrounded ourselves by anything with even a hint <laughs> of morbidity and <laughs> acted like it was fun. <laughs> Anyway, the movie monsters from the days we thought were normal frightened us and let us forget them when we felt like it. Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, Pinhead, Leatherface, the ball, and, the ball and the old man from Phantasm. One and all, great party guests. Today, there's a weird pull of nostalgia about them, but something else as well. They're a particular kind of fun, painted with muted colors and shrouded in darkness. We jump a bit upon encountering them. Then we feel alive. And more in the moment than before. Anyway, I, I'm, I, I wrote all this stuff, so uh, I think my writerly tendencies kind of uh, were leading me and, you know, pulling me into kind of a more dramatic direction than maybe I usually speak in. Um, so I stand by all this stuff, all the flow. All the florid language and whatnot, but, um, you know, a little funny to read. I thought in honor of our unique Halloween of 2020, I'd call on the expertise of a master journalist and storyteller, and who also has a chilling tale of his own about the creation of a cherished monster. Impressive guy, right? Well, that guy happens to be me. So scheduling was easy. A couple years ago, I wrote about the real-life origins of Freddy Krueger, uh, the monster, the nightmare monster from, uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street fame. Uh, the article uh, was published on a now-defunct site called Van Winkles, and everybody in the world loved it. When Wes Craven died, uh, it got shared by Dig.com, that D-I-G-G, uh, that curation site, and ping-ponged around the internet and uh uh yeah i don't know very positive response it was nice to see um you know you always want people to read your stuff so yeah it's gratifying to see people work anyway so i wrote a book proposal based on it uh that went nowhere and the article today is no longer online even though um I, yeah, I got like a lot of weird attention for it. I'm saying weird because it was like kind of unprecedented for me. Like, um, I was on the, uh, the late night 
paranormal radio show, Coast to Coast AM, the one that was started by Art Bell. Millions of people listen to it. Like millions of people listen to that show. Uh, you don't realize how vast the audience of that show is. Um, and I was a guest one night, and I think that the guy didn't love me. It, it was not Art Bell, sad to say. I don't think that the guy loved me because um, I was just, you know, I'm just a journalist and whatever. I brought a you know, a little bit of journalistic skepticism to the story. Uh, but then anyways, I went on a bunch of other paranormal things, and um, that lasted for a minute. It was pretty fun. Um, if it's still online, uh, I did a really good interview with... Um, I'll try to link to it. Uh, Midnight in the Desert, which was the show that Art Bell did after Coast to Coast. Um, it was not, at the time, again, Art Bell. I didn't get to talk to him. R.I.P. The Goat. Um, uh, but I forget the name of the interviewer, but she was awesome. Uh, it just turned out really well. Anyway, so that article is no longer online, despite how... Uh, Despite that response and uh, the book proposal sample chapter never saw the light of day, but it tells a good story. And I'm going to read both of them to you right now. Happy Halloween. Sudden and unexplained, the sleep deaths that inspired Freddy Krueger. The true story behind Nightmare on Elm Street left a trail of death without a single wisecrack by Adam Bolger. Before there was a Freddy Krueger, there was the night terror. The horror icon wasn't born in a boiler room, but he originated in troubling dreams. A string of real-world deaths inspired the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Witnesses and survivors didn't report a burned, scarred face or a striped sweater. Death came without warning or explanation while its victims slept. In the late 1970s to the mid-80s, over 110 men died in their sleep. Until their quiet final moments, they were young and healthy. Their families were stunned. Investigators were bewildered. With all the victims Asian, medical authorities named the sleep scourge Asian Death Syndrome. Witnesses and families who saw them die called it the Night Terror. The first case was reported in California's Orange County in 1977. By the summer of 1981, 20 people had fallen victim to the night terror. Authorities and medical responders were powerless as men across the country went to sleep and never woke up. Enter the Master of Heart with a master's degree. The exotic morbidity of the night terror caught the media's attention, with the Los Angeles Times newspaper running a string of stories on the quote-unquote medical mystery in 1981. The New York Times, as well as newspapers in Connecticut, Florida, and elsewhere, devoted column inches to the sleep deaths. Wes Craven, a filmmaker, with a handful of low-budget hits under his belt, read the stories. In previous films, he had coaxed terror from families threatened by gangs of maniacs. Something about these accounts hooked him. Reading of the sleep deaths, he was inspired to create the least earthbound 
and most memorable monster he would ever invent. Freddy Krueger, a killer who attacks in dreams. Craven's background blended ivory tower knowledge with guttural instincts. He received a master's from John Hopkins University before breaking into filmmaking and working in pornography. His horror movie inspiration was Night of the Living Dead. When he first saw it, the viewing experience inspired him to invoke the theater of the absurd in name-check playwrights like Ionesco and Pirandello. His first film, The Last House on the Left, was a sordid entertainment inspired by the Ingmar Bergman European art film The Virgin Spring. His follow-up, The Hills Have Eyes, was sourced in a mythic figure from 15th century Scottish history, but it also featured cannibal desert mutants. In a 2008 Cinema Fantastique interview, Craven said he wanted a subject more primal than the chattering maniacs of Last House on the Left, or the savages of The Hills Have Eyes. I wanted to do something that was tied into the deepest recesses of our subconscious, Craven said. I had history and academics, so I knew there were certain things that were universal. A former psychology student, who was clearly well-versed in Carl Jung, Craven filtered the deep sleep stories through Jung and Freud to form a monster that lurks in the subconscious. And uh, this is not in the article, but um, I actually know more about Jungian archetypes now. And uh, had I known this before, I should have mentioned that Freddy is like a trickster god. Um, you know, it's kind of the persona that he embodies. Exiles on Elm Street. Every town in America may have an Elm Street, but the horror that inspired the classic 80s slasher started halfway across the globe from America. Freddy Krueger's real-life victims didn't look like the white, middle-class teens played by Heather Langenkamp and Johnny Depp in the movie Nightmare on Elm Street. They didn't speak in mall slang. They didn't excessively blow-dry their hair or dress in anything resembling the 1980s style of pastel preppy clothing preferred by the cast of Nightmare on Elm Street. They were mostly male, and they were uniformly Asian. And they were refugees with poor English skills who'd fled their homeland to escape a nearly genocidal conflict. Not exactly the boys and girls next door from Elm Street. They are the Hmong, a pre-literate nomadic people from the mountains of Southeast Asia. Originally from southern China, they fled what had been their homeland for thousands of years in the mid-19th century when the Manchu dynasty labeled them as barbarians. They escaped to neighboring countries, notably Vietnam, Vietnam and Laos. For the Hmong who relocated to Laos, their struggles continued. First, under French colonial rule, before settling down for the decades of Laotian royal power. When the Vietnam War spread to La Laos and Cambodia, the Americans, the Americans supported, 
<laughs> Sorry. Oh, just a note on the text. Um, this is my submitted draft uh, before anybody edited it. So uh, things like um, uh, hyphenated words like American supported. Um, you know, I might have missed a couple. <laughs> the, uh, the, the careful eye of my editor, Jeff Coyen, uh, had not yet, you know, had a chance to see this shit and work out all these kinks. Anyway, uh, yes, there might be some little uh, hiccups like that, uh, just to warn you. Uh, when the Vietnam War spread to Laos and Cambodia, I'm reading Cambodia weird too. When the Vietnam War <laughs> spread to Laos and Cambodia, the American-supported Royal Lao government recruited the Hmong to fight the communist Paphet Lao troops. Also, I feel like, I, I know, I know, like, you know anything about this stuff, I'm going through this really fast. Um, you know, come on. Uh, I'm not... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you're Laotian <laughs> If you're Laotian, man, I'm sorry I know, there's a lot more going on than this Anyway, the Hmong gained the reputation Oh yeah, if you're Hmong too The Hmong gained Actually, they all like this story The ones that I talked to uh, uh, The Hmong gained a reputation as fierce fighters But the war devastated their people An estimated 30 of the Hmong population in Laos Was wiped out in the conflict Following the 1975 communist takeover about 100,000 Hmong fled Laos to seek asylum in Thailand. Of the Hmongs who remained in Laos, thousands were detained in re-education camps. Away from their homes, the Hmong struggled to adapt. They were mountain farmers and warriors of the unique religion revolving around animals and spirits. They farmed by growing opium and cleared fields with fire. Their written language only came into being in the 20th century and many Hmong couldn't read it anyway. Then they came to America and began dying in their sleep. The American Dream Interrupted The first modern recorded victim of the syndrome was Lai Howe of Orange County. Before his sudden and unexpected 1977 death, he had acclimated to American life. He worked as a medic, an Orange County social worker who knew him told the Los Angeles Times that she was shocked to hear of the death. She said Howe was in robust physical condition. That's Howe, uh, H-O-U-A. Uh, and that's his, I might be saying his first name as opposed to his last name, uh, yeah, it's a bunch of cultural shit I might be fucking up. Whatever. Uh, look, my heart's in the right place. And just, you know, roll with me, all right? She said Howell was in robust physical condition and health, and health conscious through his... It's uh, an awkward phrasing. Okay. She said Howell was in robust physical condition. And, he, and because of his professional expertise as a medic... He was health conscious. Okay. Yeah, yeah, whatever. By the summer of 1981, the LA Times reported 20 Hmong men living in America died under the same circumstances. All were young and showed no signs of ill health until death took them in their sleep. Their family said they mostly... Oh. Their family said most of them didn't smoke or drink. 
Some witnesses said they heard troubling breathings and groans right before the deaths. Only about 35,000 Hmong lived in America at the time. For the communities scattered throughout the states, the deaths were more than morbid curiosities. They were a seeming existential threat to their people. The ratio of victims to total Hmong in the country equaled all five leading cases of death for other American men in their age group. Orange County Medical Examiner Tom Prendergast told a reporter that the mysterious incidents accounted for half of all deaths among the Hmong in America during that period. The deaths prompted an inquiry by the Federal Center for Disease Control. Centers for Disease Control, Jesus. <laughs> I should have been fired. They tried to contact, uh, they tried to contain the unexplained horror of the sleep death in the wry wording of sun, dry wording of sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome, or SUNDS for its acronym. S-U-N-D-S. Officials suspected cardiac failure, but were otherwise baffled. Many blame the stress of culture shock for refugees moving to the U.S. Minnesota medical examiner Dr. Michael McGee told the New York Times he thought Hmong victims in St. Paul may have been frightened to death. Hang Pao, a former Laotian general and a political leader for the Hmong, publicly attributed the death to wartime gassing attacks. Pao, eager to turn public opinion against the Hmong's old com communist foes, said the nighttime seizures were delayed reactions to the chemical toxins the Pafet Lao used to poison villages. No definite cause emerged. The mystery deaths peaked in 1981, when 26 men, mostly Hmong refugees from Laos, died in their sleep. A few victims of the seizures who were immediately treated by CPR survived. A pattern of nightmares. While the sudden sleep death hit the American Hmong refugees the hardest, the mystery illness wasn't limited to their people alone. The sleeping death was striking Asian men across the globe. The disease had a long history in Asia, even in countries with no Hmong population. In 1983, the Associated Press. God damn it, I wrote the Associate Press. Again, I should have been fired. In 1983, the Associated Press reported that Japanese and Filipinos were dying from similar unexplained deaths. Researchers estimated that between 500 and 1,000 Japanese men, described as being in their 20s and 30s and healthy, died in their sleep with a condition known in Japan as pokori, Wordplay word slang for death that occurs in a snap. Recently unearthed research indicates that it wasn't new. CDC official Roy Barron and forensic pathologist Robert Kirshner published a report saying the attacks predated the Hmong arrival in America. Freddy wasn't the first nightmare monster. As researchers dug into the cultures with histories of sons, they found something surprising. Freddy, Freddy Krueger wasn't the only monster stalking its victims through their dreams. According to Asian folklore, monsters have been preying on sleepers for years. 
Hmong traditional beliefs revolve around nature spirits and ancestor worship. Among the most feared spirits is a nightmare monster known as the Dab Song. When Hmong fail to perform religious rituals properly, their ancestors and village spirits stop guarding them, leaving them vulnerable to the Sog Saum. The crushing attack the Dab Song uses to presses to press the life out of its victims. Shelley Adler, a professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm going to pause here for a second. I reached out to Shelley Adler a bunch of times and via email, and I think I called her maybe, but um, I heard back from her and she kind of just was like, you know, uh, didn't want to talk to me, whatever. And then once the article was... And I, I'm not mad. I just think it's interesting because, you know, whatever. She never heard of this publication. She's a college professor, probably busy. Whatever. No problem. I understand. But then um, once the article was published, uh, she sent me a copy of her book. And she uh, autographed it and said, thanks for the article. So I'd never spoken with her, but she sent me a copy of her book. And she looms pretty large in this story. Um, kind of deep into this. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Hmm. All right, back to Shelley Adler. Shelley Adler, a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, conducted dozens of field interviews among the Hmong population while researching her 2011 book, Sleep Paralysis. She found people who survived sons who related tales of dream visitations and dark creatures. One interviewee said a large hairy monster, which he likened to an American stuffed animal, accosted him in his dream as the oversized creature set on him with claws and teeth. The dreamer was paralyzed, but still able to hear voices speaking inside his home. The Dab Sog doesn't haunt the dreams of Asian men alone. In the Philippines, where 43 people out of 100,000 die from sons every year, the death was known as Bangungunk, a Tagalog word meaning to rise and moan during sleep. Maybe I meant Hmong? I don't know. What, what, the Dab song doesn't haunt the dreams of Asian men alone, but then I talk about the Philippines. I don't know. That's, some, that's a fuck up. One, some word's wrong here. Again. Yeah. I, I should have been fired. Filipino folklore holds that... Uh, I really... Okay. Filipino folklore holds that Malevolent spirits called Batibat are behind Bangungot. Bangungot. The Batibat have the appearance of ugly, obese women and live in trees. They infest houses when the trees they live on, that they live in, are used to build homes. Enraged by their displacement, they wait until the homeowners are asleep before they kill them in the style of the Sog Psalm, sitting on their victims' chests and face, sitting on their victims' chest and face to force out their life force like air from a balloon that was riddled with typos then okay sorry guys uh i'm only a broadcaster lately uh been a writer for a long time so you know just being fussy with language and whatnot kind of been doing that more all right waking up from a nightmare by the time Nightmare on Elm Street was released to theaters in 1984, The Mong Sons was slowing to a halt after its 1981 peak. It hadn't been cured, 
but after taking the lives of 116 healthy young men, the night terror shuffled back into whatever dark dream it came from. As... I left the Y off of Freddy here. As Freddy Krueger grew increasingly cartoonish and prone to one-liners in his film series, the real-life sleep deaths became less deadly. Officials like Kirshner took an optimistic assessment, postulating that stress from American culture shock caused the previous attack. With the Hmong more used to life in the States, Kirshner said, the stress was reduced and the danger was over. The same year, Sun's researchers made a breakthrough. After studying the medical histories of three survivors of the attacks, medical examiners were able to identify ventricular arrhythmias as the cause of the fatal cardiac arrests. The cause of the arrhythmias wasn't yet known, but medical authorities now knew what happened to the heart in the moments prior to the son's deaths. In 1988, CDC pathologist Roy Gibson Parrish published a study proposing that son's victims were likely carriers of hereditary defects that affected tissues that conduct electrical signals. While in most cases, those defects wouldn't be a problem, they could become fatal in a body undergoing severe stress. And while the Hmong were moving past their twin traumas of warfare and displacement, the night terror was attacking displaced Asians elsewhere in the globe. In 1990, two Thai men working construction in Singapore died in their sleep on the same night. The coincidence of two sons' death in a single night was shocking. But they weren't alone. About 200 Thai people living in Singapore would die in their sleep, had died in their sleep since 1983. Had, I guess. Oh, sorry. In sleep paralysis, Adler quoted heart specialist Michael Brodsky attributing the deaths to stress saying that men were working 13-plus-hour days while enduring slavery-like living conditions. So, yeah, if you want to do a material analysis of uh, this stuff, you know, I think that would be a pretty reasonable conclusion. So have at it, Marxists. In 1992... Oh, that's not in the story. It's my own editorializing my own story right now. In 1992, two cardiologists, who were brothers, from, oddly enough, from Italy... From Italy. <laughs> two cardiologist brothers? I don't know. Okay, so two cardiologists, and they're both brothers, and they're Italian. And their names are Pedro and Joseph Brugada, discovered how to spot warning signs for sons on an electro electrocardiogram. For their efforts, sons uh, stopped being the name, and it was rechristened a Brugada syndrome. The treatment for Brugada is an implantable a cardioverter defibrillator. Doctors implant the device in a chest like a pacemaker. When the heart starts shorting out during a son's attack, the cardioverter defibrillator emits electrical shocks to kick the hearts into gear and prevent cardiac arrest. But is the real killer still out there? Science can now detect Brugada syndrome and counteract its fatal attacks. A cataloging of the genetic abnormalities behind the syndrome is also underway. But the question of why it gripped and released the Hmong refugee population in the 1980s remains a mystery. In 2001, Shelley Adler proposed an answer. 
Her book, Sleep Paralysis, suggests that the Mong's nightmare monster, Dabsog, caused the deaths. Dabsog wasn't real, of course, but it didn't have to be real to be fatal, Adler wrote. If people believed strongly enough that it existed, it became real enough to kill. After years of research in the Hmong community, Adler believes a cultural belief in night spirits factored strongly in their deaths. Her theory is similar to investigators who attribute the deaths to culture shock. Only it was informed by a more nuanced understanding of folk beliefs in the Hmong culture. She believes that stress brought on by cultural disruption and intense feelings of powerlessness in America could have a fatal impact for people who believe evil spirits can kill men who fail to fulfill religious obligations. Shelley says the mind, driven by despair and the conviction they will be killed, orders the attack. The body carries out the order via ventricular arrhythmias. The obvious and terrifying implication is that if you believe the Dabsog or Freddy Krueger is coming for you, one of them might actually come. Or is Wes Craven making it all up? Wes Craven has told the story behind Nightmare on Elm Street several times. He says he came across three small articles in the Los Angeles Times about immigrant men from Southeast Asia, specified sometimes as Cambodians in his telling, who died in the middle of nightmares. Craven says the reporters didn't see a pattern and that he made the connection himself. The third victim's story is the most vivid in Craven's telling. A 21-year-old son of a doctor kept himself awake for days out of fear of something attacking him in his nightmares. His family gave him sleeping pills and implored him to rest. But he resisted and stayed awake. And after about a week, he finally fell asleep while watching television. In the middle of the night, the family wakes to screams and crashing sounds. They run to his room, only to find the man dead. An autopsy revealed no cause of death, but the family found a hidden coffee maker and discarding sleep, discarded sleeping pills in the man's room. It struck me as such an incredibly dramatic story that I was intrigued by it for a year at least before I finally thought that I should write something about this kind of situation, Craven said in a 2008 interview. You could easily see how that would inspire a filmmaker like Craven. It's a great story. There's generational clash, and it's adorned with telling details like that hidden coffee maker before. The problem is that it might never have been printed in any newspaper. I spent hours combing the LA Times digital archive and never found a story that matched the vivid details in Craven's account. I searched for doctor's sons, coffee maker, sleeping pills, any combination of words or phrases that might reveal Craven's story. I watched videos about the making of Nightmare on Elm Street and freeze-framed every time I saw a newspaper article appear. Still, my, ser- my search proved fruitless. Some of the details from Craven's story emerged, though. The first victim, or Mer- the first known American victim of what was later named Brugada Syndrome was a professional medic which might explain why the director mentions a doctor when he tells about the inspiration. In an LA Times story from February 1981, a man died after falling asleep watching television. 
like in Craven's story. But he was 47 and a father, not Craven's young man. And they are Laotian, not Cambodians. And there's never, not even once, a hidden coffee machine. Craven declined to participate in this article to my great disappointment. I wanted to talk to him in general, but specifically, I wanted to see if he had a yellowing, tattered newspaper clipping filed somewhere that he could offer as proof of his inspiration. Because I think he either made up that story as show business self-promotion gimmick or invented it in a drugged-up haze. Um, Craven died uh, a couple months uh, after this story was published, so, you know, uh, he wasn't able to... <laughs> Never got that clarification. All, at the time, Nightmare was conceived. Wes Craven wasn't the grandfatherly gentleman of horror he is today. The early 80s were dark days for a man who, who would... For the man who would helm scream. His early low-budget horror successes were distant in the rear view, and his recent projects, including the early comic book adaptation Swamp Thing, were box office duds. While he didn't get a paycheck for three years, his personal life crashed around him. His first marriage had failed, and his drug use, drug use escalated from marijuana to cocaine. He got clean before writing Nightmare on Elm Street, but retained a good dose of Hunter Thompson-style writing quirks, banging out screenplay drafts in a studio wearing a pith helmet and a bathrobe. Craven has said that he hung on to the nightmare and death idea for over a year before he wrote the screenplay. Is it possible that a coked-up Craven, possibly dressed only in a pith helmet and a bathrobe, came across an L.A. Times story that had him reeling with inspiration? Could his overstimulated mind have spiraled out invented details that he would later remember as fact and part of the original newspaper articles? I mean, the only possibility is that I'm a terrible researcher. The, some, the story is somewhere hiding in the LA Times archive, and I missed it. I'm going to be honest. I don't think so. I'm not saying this out of vanity, but I have respect for Craven's creation, Freddy Krueger. Craven only directed two Nightmare on Elm Street films. The original, in 1994's Wes Craven's New Nightmare, an exercise in meta-terror that brought Freddy into the real world to terrorize the people behind his films. Was that second movie a fiction that was really... Okay, was that second movie a fiction that really... Meh, was the fiction of that second movie a thin veil over a forgotten truth? Had Freddy, like some sort of malevolent trickster god... That's interesting. I didn't know Jungian thing at the time, but I still thought about trickster gods. I don't know. Willed himself, okay. Had Freddy, like some sort of malevolent trickster god, willed himself into existence by implanting false details to lure, to inspire a down on his luck filmmaker who is susceptible to suggestion? Again, the terrifying and obvious implication is that if you're afraid Freddy might come, he could. So that's the end of that one. Um, let's see how long that took. Oh, wow, that took a half an hour. I was expecting it to take about 10 minutes. Oh, man. I bloviated a bunch. All right, uh, well, I'm not going to read the sample chapter. Maybe I'll read the sample chapter uh, in a separate podcast? I don't know. Seems long enough, right? Yeah. All right. 
Okay, I'll think about it. All right, so uh, <laughs> new track uh, might sound a bit different. Anyway, it's me. It's the same night, and uh, you know, fuck it. Uh, like my hero Bill O'Reilly says, we're gonna do it live. All right, so here's uh, a bunch of the sample chapter. I don't know how much uh, I'll get into it, but I read the um, I read the first sentence. Man, somebody should have bought this book. Honestly, uh, it's still they, they still can if they're out there. Uh, pending. That's the end of the chapter. Most corpses cannot hide secrets from Larry Lumen, a veteran medical examiner. Lumen was accustomed to probing cold bodies for answers, but Yang Lang Thao's body puzzled him. Lumen didn't know that the didn't know how the Laotian immigrant died, and worried that the unknown killer was stalking an unsuspecting, vulnerable community. Thao lay on Lumen's autopsy slab in an unseasonably warm January day. Lumen, with the practiced patience he learned in his ten years as a medical examiner for Oregon's Multumna County, performed a routine autopsy, cutting the body open and peeling back the skin, methodically removing, weighing, and studying its organs. He examined slices of tissue samples under microscopes and carefully executed a routine series of toxicology tests on the body. Lumen's examination revealed nothing. There were no signs of trauma or organ failure. He was able to rule out any infectious processes uh, like bacteria or a virus. He thought it was a congenital condition passed through genetics, but the mechanism behind the death remained unknown. As far as Lumen could tell, Thao's body had just stopped working. Lumen studied the investigator's notes cold from police interviews with Lang Thao's family and friends. The investigators had to work through a language barrier as Thao and his family had come to the States only eight months before his death. But everyone close to Thao said the same thing. The death was a shock. No one saw it coming. There were no warning signs. Thao was in fine health until the night he until the night he died suddenly in his sleep. Thao had a wealth of witnesses to the final night he spent alive. He shared his Portland apartment with his wife, his eight children, and extended family. Maybe just eight children, maybe not his. <laughs> Relatives said the night he died, he stayed up late to watch television with his uncle. His wife stirred when he came to bed in the early morning. She awoke again hours later. To the sound of her husband struggling for breath. Jesus, that detail seems crazy. Uh, really morbid and grim in the times of COVID. Thou's wife knew something was terribly wrong with her husband, but didn't know what. She shook her husband, desperate to wake him, but he was dead within moments. Lumen's professional life is a long parade of dead people. In the ten years he'd been on the job, he might examine as many as eight bodies a day or as few as none. Lumen normally didn't dwell on a single corpse, no matter how elusive its cause of death. A mysterious cause of death was rare, but not unheard of. Lumen and his fellow examiners saw young and healthy people who died for unexplained reasons every year. 
but Thao didn't die alone. He was the second Hmong to come across Lumen's autopsy slab in three days. The deaths of two residents of a city with a population of over 360,000 are easy to file away. But there was a nagging detail. There were only 2,000 Hmong in the entire state, and both of the Hmong who had been presented to Lumen had died suddenly in their sleep for unexplained reasons. When paired with Xiong Tao, Xiong, Tao, Tao's death was troubling. Xiong Tao Xiong was 29 and in robust health until the night of his death. Like Tao, he had recently fled war-ravaged Laos to settle in America. He died on the first night of 1981 in his sleep. Tao Xiong was the first Hmong sleep death of the year in Oregon. But as Lumen soon found, not the 1980s. After talking with two other Morgue County pathologists, Lumen found that two other Hmong men had died in their sleep within nine months of Zong and Thao's death. They, were, they too were young and healthy until their final early morning hours. Together, the four men presented a troubling statistical anomaly. We do see sudden unexplained deaths in young people every year, Lumen told a Los Angeles Times reporter. Maybe four, five, or six in a population of a million. But four out of, a, out of 2,000 is out of whack. Lumen reached out to his colleagues in other cities where large numbers of Hmong had settled, like Minneapolis and San Diego, to see if the mysterious nighttime deaths were confined to Oregon's borders. He learned they weren't. Among the 8,000 Hmong in St. Paul, four had died in their sleep. By late February, Lumen had traced 13 mysterious sleep deaths of Hmong refugees across the country beginning in 1977. The victims in Seattle, Des Moines, Southern California, and elsewhere. The deaths shared details. The victims were mostly young and mostly male. They were in good health. At least they were until they went to bed on one fateful night. While all the victims were Hmong, the deaths, the deaths seemed to be a purely American phenomenon. Over and over, victims' family members told investigators that the sleeping deaths had only happened in America and were unknown in their former homes in the mountains of Laos. Some investigators and observers speculated the Hmong's recent bloody history was to blame. In the 1960s and 70s, the tribal people were recruited to fight in a vicious war between the Laotian monarchy and the communist Pathet Lao revolutionaries. The Pathet Lao, Pathet Lao had covered battlefields and villages with clouds of poison gas. Members of the Hmong community... Most prominently tribal leader and former military gen general Vang Pao believed the deaths were delayed reactions to the exposure. But Lumen didn't agree. Nerve gas didn't act that way, he thought. Gas is an imprecise weapon. It expands to fill whatever area it encounters. And it's deployed indiscriminately. At least it wasn't Laos. Large swaths of Hmong and other Laotians were gassed. Without exposure, Lumen thought, the effects wouldn't be limited to only young men. And while there was no chemical that killed exclusively during nighttime, while 
and there was no chemical that killed exclusively during nighttime while the victim slept. And a nerve gas that acted the way people suspected would probably never be deployed. No military in the world would ever use a weapon that took four years to kill. It doesn't make sense to me, Lumen told a reporter. Nerve gas doesn't act this way. There's no evidence. Lumen thought the swiftness of their deaths meant they died from heart failure, while the deaths, with the deaths occurring exclusively in sleep and witnesses describing victims struggling to breathe, Lumen suspected respiratory failure. But otherwise, he and his colleagues in Oregon and across America were stumped. I know what they didn't die of, Ramsey County, Minnesota Assistant Medical Examiner Michael McGee told the New York Times. They didn't die of getting shot in the head, stabbed in the heart. They didn't fall off the roof, and they didn't get poisoned. Because we did an autopsy in each case, and we got a big zero. With neither the heart nor the brain a smoking gun, Lumen considered the cause of death might not be an organ, but a mental state. With all the deaths occurring during sleep, Lumen wondered if dreams could be to blame. Did the victim's subconscious conjure something they couldn't handle? Is it possible the men might have been scared to death? Researching medical literature, Lumen found an obscure medical condition called the Bangugut syndrome, where nightmares are believed to have been fatal. Hawaiian pathologist Nils P. Larson christened the syndrome in 1955 after studying the sleep deaths of a group of Filipino migrants in the 1950s. Just like the Hmong victims, the Filipinos Larson studied died in their sleep and for reasons that defied post-mortem analysis. Larson speculated the men had been scared to death by something in their dreams. He named the phenomenon Bangangut syndrome after the Tagalog word for nightmare. While not fully understood by medical science and questioned in the medical community, the fatal syndrome became notorious enough to factor into the Perry Mason pulp mystery novel, The Case of the Sunbather's Diary, where author Erie Stanley Gardner wrote at length about the mystery of the Filipino nightmare deaths. Lumen wondered if the fatal disease could have predated the Hmong's arrival in America. They were tribal farmers who lived in remote hills without access to modern technology. They spoke their own unique language, which didn't even have a written counterpart until the late 20th century, when Christian missionaries in Laos invented one for them. That written language was rarely used by the Hmong. The kind of precise record-keeping needed to recognize a threat and track it like this. No, needed to recognize and track a threat like this didn't exist. I remember this as being well written. I mean, okay, this is me. No, I'm not reading this. I didn't say this in the story. I'm just me reading now. I remember like thinking that I had done some good writing with this. It's kind of like thinking if I, when I looked at it again years, this like, I don't know, it's like six years ago, something like that. I thought if I looked at it again, I'd be like, no, this is bullshit. No, it's pretty good. It's fucking good, man. Uh, thanks, buddy. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the fatal sleep disease could have been hiding in bedrooms for generations. 
Lang Thao's widow said that in Laos, the Hmong didn't have such drama of a husband dying. Illiterate and left to care for eight suddenly fatherless young children. Oh, wow, it was his kids. She was unsure of how she'd support herself other than relying on public assistance. She told reporters she wished that there had never been a political disaster or war so that she and her family could have remained in the villages in Laos. She believed that if, she, if they had stayed in their old home, her husband would still be alive. However, I do not blame this country, she said after her husband's death. In Yang Lang Thao's post-mortem medical form, Lumen wrote pending as the cause of death. Uh, all right, I'll do the next little bit. So that was the first... Um, that's the first little, like, sub-chapter. I don't know. I don't know what you call it. So now we're on to an adequate explanation. I want to find out what happened, yeah. All right. As Lumen moved on to other cases in Oregon, medical authorities in Southern California were waking up to the sleep deaths among their, pop, their Hmong communities. Investigations indicated the sleep death had claimed its first victim four years before Lumen had noticed the pattern among Hmong men. Lai Dao, an otherwise healthy young man living in Orange County, California, had died in his sleep in 1977 in the same chilling manner as the four men in Oregon. Dao's death puzzled his friends and family. Not only was he young and physically robust, but he worked as a medic and would therefore have been attuned to threats to his health. They thought that he had been ill prior to his death. His personal... Uh, they thought that had he been ill prior to his death, his professional training surely would have prompted him to seek treatment or at least have talked about what he was going through. Medical examiners filed Dow's death as acute cardiac insufficiency. Orange County social worker Joan Gill, a friend of Dow's, Grimly joked that the term was a fancy way of saying they didn't know it killed him. She told a reporter that the death of such a vital young man was a frustrating mystery. It was such an extreme example because he was so big and robust, Gill told an LA Times staff writer in the summer of 1981. He was at least sophisticated enough about health matters to know if he was sick. Officials didn't attach any significance to Dow's health at the time. It was only in the summer of 1981, after the lives of two other Orange County Hmong men also halted to dark and moonlit stops that they noticed. Eh, not a great sentence, but, you know. Orange County epidemiologist Thomas J. Prendergrass didn't have to struggle to piece the deaths together. People across the country made the connection for him. A reporter from Minneapolis called him, asking him about mysterious deaths among the 7,000 Hmong living in Southern California. Before he could check his records, someone from Portland was on the phone asking the same questions. That was when I began to suspect that we had a problem, Pendergrass told an L.A. Times reporter. In July of 1981, Prendergast and his fellow medical investigators were confident they had identified 20 victims of the syndrome among the Hmong and suspected two more deaths might have been connected as well. All were healthy, most were young, and all but one was male. Four dead men, four dead men didn't make for an epidemic, but researchers became alarmed when they consider that the four accounted for this, a significant percentage of the death among Hmong in the community. For the population at large, the deaths were a morbid curiosity. For the Hmong, they are looking increasingly 
like an existential threat. It becomes meaningful when you discover there have only been 13 deaths among the Hmong adults in the county at that time, Pendergast said. In other words, it may be that half of all deaths among have been caused by this. The ratio of sleep death victim to total Hmong was equal or more dramatic in other cities and communities. In Portland, all four Hmong deaths reported in 1981 were attributed to the sleeping sickness. The Twin Cities were between 10,000 and 12,000 of the 35,000 total Hmong in America had settled had six cases. In all cases, an autopsy was not able to uncover an adequate explanation of the deaths, Prendergast said. Realizing that, um, I call them Prendergast and Pendergast, uh, uh, alternately. I, I've got to find out which one's right. Researchers considered the Hmong's... Okay, okay, okay stress, not stress. Okay. Uh, okay. Researchers blamed the, uh, the Hmong stress of leaving their homeland and being forced to adapt to life in America as a possibility. Uh, considered a uh, rough sentence. All right. But surely the stress of adapting to America would be spread evenly among the sexes. Why would only men succumb to this illness? And while many... <laughs> really walking that out by accident... <laughs> And while many Hmong struggled to adapt to a new country and, be, <laughs> and a new language, Lai Dao had considerable success adjusted to life in America, but had become patient zero nonetheless. Prendergast and other observers thought success... Okay, sorry. Uh, good idea. All right, Prendergast and other observers thought the success with which he adapted to American life argued against the stress hypothesis. Oh, Jesus, what a fucking sentence, motherfucker. And stress was hard to measure anyhow. In interviews, Mong... Okay. Okay. Community members told officials and reporters that nerve gas exposure... Oh, God damn it. During the war, accounted for... Eh. All right, so the first one was the first part was good. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Almost the end of this thing. Okay. In interviews, Mong told investigators over and over that the deaths never happened in their homeland. Community members told officials and reporters that nerve gas exposure during the war accounted for the strange deaths. Prendergast, like Lumen, doubted was ga- that doubted gas was to blame. None of the next of kin were aware that any of the victims had been exposed to gas, he said. On top of that, there aren't any known toxin materials that induce these kind of delayed effects months or years after exposure. Doctors treating the Hmong doubted that a cure would be found. They instead focused on education and treatment. By the end of 1981, 35 Hmong across the country were were dead from the mysterious illness. All right, that's just about an hour. I think that's all right. 